Welcome to Sensible Chat. I'm your host, Sensible Bobby, YNAB Certified Budget Coach, Ramsey Solutions Master Financial Coach, and Registered Tax Preparer with the California Tax Education Council. And today I have the great privilege of interviewing David Gatchel. He is author of the Financial Empowerment Handbook, the Comprehensive Guide to Financial Literacy and Personal Prosperity. This book just came out and I'm telling you it is a must read. David is a father of two children, award-winning entrepreneur, best-selling author, and an advocate for early financial literacy among young people. His businesses include real estate and government services, and he enjoys coaching and mentoring small business owners. He's also an active supporter of entrepreneurship and financial literacy programs for youth. David, welcome to Sensible Chat. Thanks for having me, Bobby. Excited to chat with you. This is a fantastic book. It really is a handbook. And I like the fact that you can pick it up in one area or another if there's something that is an issue to you right away, or you can read it straight through. Either way, it's going to benefit you greatly. But of course, I highly recommend that you read the whole thing because it's all very valuable information. So let me start by asking you why you wrote this book. I have young kids and I have slightly older nieces and I wanted to make sure they had all the information they needed to start their lives on a financial level in the right direction to help put them on the path to prosperity. And I read a lot of books that were out there and I didn't find the book that I wanted for them. So the entrepreneurial mindset, I said, well, I got to write the book myself. So that's what I spent the past year doing, writing a book that I feel is a comprehensive resource for the kids in my family, my nieces first, and then my kids later on. But in going through that process, I realized that you know, it can probably help other people as well. So that's the goal. You did a great job combining all this really important information in a way that young people and older people can understand. So that's a beautiful thing. The name of the book, again, is the Financial Empowerment Handbook. What does financial empowerment mean to you and why do you feel it's important? I feel empowering youth and actually all people is important, right? We want everybody to be able to have the lives they want and do whatever they want to do, right? So I'm trying to help, you know, remove some of the potential limitations, you know, regarding to the book financially. If we give them all the tools they need, then hopefully they can make better decisions and chart their own course where they want to go. When I started writing the book, I was thinking financial literacy. And as I got deeper and deeper into the project, I realized that there are a lot of books and resources out there that teach financial literacy. It's not rocket science. It's no secret about saving and investing and paying for college and these kind of things. But what was missing, in my opinion, was going a step further and presenting that information to a young audience in a way that's going to you know, help uplift them, empower them support them through their struggles. We're all going to make mistakes, right? My book focuses a lot on you know some of my financial missteps over the past 20 or 30 years. I'm presenting that in a way to be vulnerable, to be approachable, relatable, because nobody gets through life without you know making mistakes. That's as true in finance as it is in many other aspects of life. So the idea is by, you know, sharing a relatable story, presenting these very standard topics, saving, investing, all the stuff, but by presenting it in a way that's more relatable to a young audience, 
In my opinion, that is the empowerment piece. It helps set them up for success. As you mentioned in the intro, you know, you can read one chapter or the whole book. And the hope is that if someone reads it now, they might come back to it in a year when they want to buy their first car. They might come back to it a couple of years later when they want to buy their first house, right? So it can be used as a guide throughout many years of one's life and hopefully offer that ongoing encouragement, sharing stories again, showing that, hey, there's no right path. There are many different paths. Everybody has their own path. And the book just lays out some of the cause and effect. You know, if someone takes, you know, a certain behavior, there are certain consequences. And if that's not a consequence that someone is happy with, you know, they can go back and start again and have a different behavior, a different approach, and most likely get a different result. So that's how I see empowerment. And that's really what I'm passionate about. And I feel that's what sets my book apart from many others is that that's the focus to uplift, support, and motivate not in any way to point fingers, tell young people what they should or shouldn't do and not make anybody feel bad for financial missteps because we all have them. Yeah. And it's unfortunate, but beneficial at the same time that young people can learn from the older ones of us that have already made those mistakes. Like you said, we all make those mistakes and hopefully they can learn from them and sidestep some of the stuff that we had to go through. I see your book as supportive and motivating in a special way because it goes beyond being a cheerleader and actually gives them the tools. All of this stuff that we're talking about is so important for young people to learn, and yet it's not being taught in schools as much as a lot of other things. Nowhere near as much as it should. As a matter of fact, many states don't have any kind of requirement or even offer it. And I know that you've been working on this, so tell me how you feel about that and what you're seeing right now. I feel strongly that every young person needs to have this in front of them. Currently, there are a lot of organizations out there that are also promoting and doing a great job. My book is not meant to replace or improve upon what is already being done. However, less than half of the states have a mandated requirement for high school graduation for personal financial literacy, less than half. I think it was 23. There's a lot of change going on at the moment because of advocacy of some you know, of the leading people in the country in this regard. So they're doing a great job. Less than 10 years ago, there were only a couple schools, if that, that required it. Now, about half of the states require it. So some great progress, but not enough. And so the hope for the book is that for young people that don't have access, either they're homeschooled, maybe they've gone through high school and graduated and didn't have access to a personal financial literacy course, or those later in life that never had it and want to catch up this can be a resource or for those in high school that offers a class, but they choose not to take it or it's not offered at the right time for whatever challenges there are, they can't take it. This book can fill the gap. I think, you know, if a school is offering a qualified teacher teaching a good curriculum, that's great. And everybody should take that if they have the opportunity. But many of our young people, students in high school don't have that opportunity. So I'm hopeful the book can fill that gap. In Texas, for example, longtime Texas resident. Now I'm thinking about education for my kids here. So I've learned that Texas, they have a state standard for a course on personal financial literacy and economics. Um, It's a half credit class. Uh, It's recommended for high school seniors or juniors, but it's not required for graduation. It's an elective. And so I've talked to many, many high school students and many of them are opting to take the more standard economics course, probably the same you know economics class that you and I took in high school. I didn't love it, to be honest. And it hasn't had that much implication or impact on my professional and adult life. But these kids, some of them are having to choose between economics and then personal financial literacy, which includes a little bit of economics, 
and the economics class includes a little bit of personal finance, but there's not enough personal finance. And so what I did with the book is I actually aligned the book with all of the requirements for the state of Texas for the course, Personal Financial Literacy and Economics. So the idea is that if a young student does not take that class for whatever reason, if they read the book, they will get all the information that they would have had in a full semester class on that topic. So really a supplemental text to an economics program or a read at home over the holidays resource for homeschoolers or something like that. But again, what started as really my story about personal finance, success, failure, or whatnot evolved dramatically when I updated the content to meet 100% of the Texas state requirements. So it includes things that I'm not passionate about as much, life insurance, writing a will, paying for a funeral, things like that, right? Those aren't my passion points, but they are required by the state of Texas. So the book now is a lot more comprehensive. And in fact, it meets all the requirements. So I'm hopeful that it might get a little traction in some schools in Texas or elsewhere. I know in California, there is no mandate either for uh, financial education. So I'm hoping it'll have a universal appeal. Everyone I talk to says, yes, we need more of this. So I wrote a book and hopefully it can help as many people as needed. Yeah, I hope that California will follow suit and all the other states as well. What other subject is going to so permeate your life on every level, every single day beyond personal finance? And yet it's not required. It just boggles the mind. I was speaking with one of the independent school districts near where I am in Texas. And they told me that they offered this personal financial literacy and economics class last year. There wasn't much interest by the students. And so this year, they actually were not offering the class because the students didn't demand it. And so I'm thinking in my head, I'm going back, you know, 30 years when I was in high school, could I have said, I don't want to study English? Right. You know, senior level English writing papers. I didn't love it. Could I say, I don't want to study that or chemistry or biology or social studies and history? I didn't know it was an option for kids to say, I want to learn that. I don't want to learn that when it comes to fundamentals like this. So I'm just really surprised and frustrated that, you know, a school takes lack of kids signing up, meaning that they don't actually want or need that information. And I think what's happening is that the schools have their own interests. It's easier to keep teaching the same stuff. They've got teachers that have been doing it for 30 years, no doubt doing a great job. Teaching is one of the hardest jobs, but it's not serving our young people as well as if we make some changes, modify what we're teaching and give them practical real world knowledge. You know, writing the book, I spoke to many young people and other folks as well. And in one of those interviews, I had a really high achieving young man, senior in high school. He had taken 15 AP classes and he said that he could not take the personal financial literacy class because it would hurt his GPA. He had to take AP economics. And because of that, he expressed to me that he felt unsure how he was going to manage his personal finances once he went to college next year. He was a little scared that he didn't know how to deal with money and all that on his own. He's going to be a brain surgeon, probably a real smart guy, but he doesn't know money. For someone like that, I think, you know, reading a book, a single resource like mine could give him all the information he needs to get up to that level of confidence so that he can perform well on a personal level once he goes away to school. I've talked to people who have told me, you know, one of the reasons that it's not taught in schools more is because, like you were saying, you know, teachers have been teaching other things for 30 years, but more to the point, they don't a lot of times understand personal finance. They don't know how to teach it. 
And so it just doesn't get done. And I think that's the beauty of your book. When I was going through it, I was thinking, you've made it to the standard of a personal finance curriculum in Texas. And to me, it's like a textbook that you could use in a class and just go through chapter by chapter. I mean, at the end of every chapter, you've got these review questions that kids and young adults and all of us need to ask ourselves to make sure that we understand what we're reading, to make sure that we're on the right track. It's great if somebody takes your book and reads it on their own. That's fantastic. But could teachers also take this book and use it as a tool in their curriculum for a personal finance class? I mean, if the teachers read this book, they're going to have more general knowledge and perhaps understand how to teach it. But they could teach directly from your book, could they not? I think they could. That was the idea with how we set it up. At the beginning of each chapter, we engage with the reader on a self-assessment, just sort of assessing where they are today. Chapter one is about earning money, right? Having your first job. So we talk about, you know, where are they? Or we're asking them those questions really to start their thinking process. Okay, well, here I am. Do I have a job? No. Did I pay taxes? No. You know, where are they in this context? And then at the end of every chapter, we do a quick recap on all the topics that we covered in the in the chapter. And then we do a checkpoint. And a checkpoint is a series of five or six questions at the end of every chapter, which are very closely tied to the curriculum for Texas, right? You know, it's based on Texas, but it's very, very universal around the country. I mean, investing and saving and having a job and these kind of things, it's not different in Texas. That's just a standard that it was directly written to. And so the idea is that it could be an independent read, right? Maybe a teacher hands out the book, gives the class the week to read it. And then at the end of the week, they all have open discussion about the five or six questions in the checkpoint at the end of that chapter. The book has 11 chapters. So I think it could fit well into probably a half or a single semester class without too much effort required for the teacher. The idea with the book was not to write it like a normal textbook. I remember when I was in school, textbook is a bad word, right? It's not like a fun read. It's not something I want to take home and snuggle up in bed and get the book out, right? I'm not saying my book is, but it's better than a textbook. In my opinion, it's more story-based. It's personal information. It's relatable, contextual, as an alternate to some of the more heavily structured and academic resources that are out there. Again, I recognize that with the book, the reader is going to be a young person. So our target reader is 16 to 18 years old. We updated all the tone, the language, the vocabulary. It's very much written for a junior or senior in high school. We recognize further that those young people are not going out on Amazon or bookstores looking for a book on personal finance. They don't know about it, right? They don't know what they don't know. So we need to appeal to the adult, the teacher, the parent to say, hey, this is a resource that may really help you Essentially, on the outside of the book, the concept of the book needs to appeal to the adults in the room so that they make it available to the young people who are actually going to read it. If we write a book and parents buy it and kids are not interested in reading it, that's zero progress. But if we write it specifically for the the audience, which we have, I feel that's a better bet. So it's not going to line up exactly like a normal textbook would. I actually like to think of it as not a textbook. It's a resource. It's a handbook, right? But can teachers use it in a classroom? Definitely. And we've structured it that way, each chapter with those assessments and checkpoints so that it's relatively easy to follow. 
I really saw it as a manual when I was reading it. It made me think about when a light goes on in your car on the dashboard, something's wrong, but it's an icon, right? It doesn't say your engine is burning up. So you have to go to the manual to figure out what's wrong with it. And that's what I really got from your book is that it's such a tool that whatever your personal finance issue is, you can go into this book and say, I'm thinking of buying my first car. Okay, let me go to that chapter. Should I buy or should I rent? Okay, let's go to that chapter. You know, that's why I liken it to a manual. And that's what I really loved about it is that, again, you can just go to your particular pain point, but you can also use it as a way to gain knowledge about a lot of different things. And it's bite size. It's not overwhelming. There's so much that has, you know, more academic, like you were talking about, more jargon. And I think that that's off-putting to people who may not be nerds like me when it comes to personal finance, you know? Yeah, you're right. I sent it out to many people, yourself included, for early reviews, and I got great feedback. And every comment that I got, I took seriously. And I went back through and I had one high school student from Colorado, actually, great young man. He told me that there's a little too much jargon. There were a few things he didn't understand. So I was like, okay, this is my target audience. This is not what I want. So I went back and I, I changed any reference to, you know, introducing any words or phrases that I think everybody knows. He told me that that was not the case. He did not, or his group did not understand certain things. So I got rid of as much of the jargon as I could. When I introduced a new term, I define it you know, and usually in context so that everybody knows as we're moving through the book, what are we talking about? You can't write a personal finance book and not talk about terms and definitions in that space. But we definitely did do it in a way where we introduce the terms, we define them, and we try to reuse them a couple of times to kind of make the point stick. Let's jump into some specifics in the book, starting in chapter two with entrepreneurship. I loved how you discussed the idea of entrepreneurs starting a small business to gain experience, if nothing else. So explain this idea. Well, to start with, I'm a lifelong entrepreneur. I've had different businesses and I'm passionate about helping others that are on a similar journey. I do some business coaching and working with other entrepreneurs to you know, help them achieve the success that they want, right? So I'm a big supporter of entrepreneurship programs and organizations. And my next book might just be on entrepreneurship. <laughs> what I'm trying to present in the chapters, I said there are 11 chapters. The first one is earning income, right? When getting your first job. But I'm trying to present it to young people in a way that they know what all the opportunities are for them. And a lot of us follow in our parents' footsteps, whether that's you know going to work in the same factory whether that's going to the same university, studying the same topics, living in the same city. We follow in our parents' footsteps many times, for better or worse. And some people, their family has always you know, had jobs. Maybe they're happy with the jobs, maybe they're not happy with the jobs, but jobs, they work for someone else. That's more common. So I'm presenting in chapter two, I'm introducing entrepreneurship as a viable means to support oneself throughout life. And in my opinion, right, a very good option but I think a lot of young people don't know that's an option. They might see Shark Tank and think, oh, God, the billionaires and you know high tech and that's all super cool stuff, but that's not me. And so in the book, I'm trying to introduce it at a kind of more manageable, relatable level that anybody can start a business. It doesn't have to be the next billion dollar business. It can easily be a business that supports the family and has a few employees and allows more freedom and flexibility for the individual than going to work for someone else. That's the idea of entrepreneurship. And, you know, I do mention a couple well-known names, Mark Cuban, he's a Texas billionaire and Shark Tank, but I mentioned him just as sort of the extreme case, but that's not normal. 
much more normal is mom and pop businesses or other entrepreneurs doing something new, success, failure, success, failure. A lot of entrepreneurs are on that kind of a journey where they go up and down. And I'm trying to introduce entrepreneurship to a young audience, advocating its viability as a potential path. And to your point, it can be a short-term path, right? If you're in high school or college and you start a, a lawn mowing business or a painting business or some other service and you make some money and you have some great experience, that can transition you very well into a job, a career, a very productive career. But I think entrepreneurship for young people is a great idea that maybe isn't being promoted as often as, well, you know, you're in high school, you're going to, you know, either going to go down a, a vocational track and learn welding or carpentry, or you're going to do you know, advanced classes and plan to go to college and then get a graduate degree. You know, there are different paths that we go on, but I think very rarely are young students introduced to entrepreneurship. So that's the goal for that chapter. That's our problem, right? I think a lot of times we, and when I say we, as a society, we tend to get stuck on what's right in front of our face, the traditional path. That's the way we've always done it. And so the idea of entrepreneurship gets lost a lot of times, not only for younger people, but for any age group. And it's so empowering that you put it in there as an idea for kids, because I think that you can be an entrepreneur at any age. It's been proven, but people look at it as, oh, they must have been unique in some way because they did this. Well, no, it's just that they had that mindset wherever it came from. Somebody gave them that mindset and empowered them that they could do it and they proved that they could. So it's a wonderful thing. And what I really loved about what you said in the book about it being for experience, if nothing else, was if you're trying it out as a kid, that's perfect because then you have the opportunity to fail and it doesn't matter. You know, you're not going to go hungry and you find out whether you love it or whether you love something else. But the experience, like you said, that you take from it, imagine what your resume looks like. You said that in the book. Imagine your resume compared to another 17-year-old who hasn't had any jobs whatsoever, and you've got management experience because you managed your own thing. Whether it failed or succeeded doesn't really matter, right? Yeah, for sure. You know, I've interviewed and hired many people in my businesses. And, you know, if someone were to, you know, sit in front of me and, you know, tell me about the business they started when they were 16 or 17 or 20 or 25 or whatever age, I'm going to be impressed. I'm not going to focus on, you know, how much money they made or how many customers they had. No, they started a business. Great. The tenacity that it takes to do that. Hopefully they were successful and made some money and achieved their goals. But, you know, going out on one's own, that takes a high level of confidence, tenacity. They got to go and do it. And the skills that it takes to do that are skills that relate to most jobs. In staying with that and the job front, the job or entrepreneurship, whatever it might be that somebody decides, let's talk about Ikigai. And you discuss Ikigai in chapter three. Tell us what it is and why it's important. Ikigai is a Japanese philosophy that's essentially just figuring out what's a, a good fit for someone's path in life, kind of combining, you know, passion and what you're good at and other things where you've had the center that actually covers all four of those concentric circles. It's a concept that I learned of more recently in my life. And I wish I would have learned it as I was growing up, going to my guidance counselor in high school. I didn't get a lot of great feedback when I was in high school. It was just, you did well in math, you should be an engineer. That was it. No one asked me what my personal passions were or longer term goals. I think that was missing from my high school experience. And that was 30 years ago. 
but I don't think that much has changed in terms of, you know, really trying to customize the high school experience and plan for the future for the unique individual. And so that's what I'm introducing. Yeah, to Japanese philosophy, that's not meant to be too highbrow or hard to understand. It's really just saying this is a concept where you look at different buckets in your life or different things that you're interested in, and you try to find out where they overlap. Just because someone's good in math doesn't mean they're going to be happy as an engineer. They might be the best engineer in the world, but it doesn't mean they're going to be happy. And so by looking at it through this lens, the idea is that we look at, okay, someone's good at math. They like helping people. They've got these other skills. Where does it overlap? What might be a path of interest? I'm not saying it's not right to start down that path where you, you know, you're good at math and you go into engineering, but recognize what's happening around that so you can start to put the pieces in place so you can chart a course where you're going. Some of the metrics in high school, as I remember, our high school reported the total dollar value of scholarships that the high school graduating class got. They wanted to get a big number. So they wanted people to apply and get scholarships and all this. There was never any follow-up like a year later, how many kids enrolled, how many kids dropped out, how many went four years and graduated, and then how many you know had a successful career in that field. I mean, of course, that would be much too long, right? They were just focused on what information they had as we were graduating. So that's not practical, but it's important. And I think some key information is missing from high schools as they're educating and preparing young people for what comes next. Sometimes they're focused on what's easiest for the school. Okay, let's just package these kids off to trade school. Let's package these ones off to college. These guys are just going to work in local you know, retail jobs. Done. Well, I don't think so. I think there's a way to kind of look at the different areas in one's life and try to find out you know, what might be a good long-term fit. Absolutely. I think that is such a beautiful part of your book because I've heard of the Ikigai concept. I've seen it written out, but for some reason, the graphic that you had in your book really spoke to me. I mean, I finally got it. And I was like, wow, what a novel idea that we should figure out what we actually want to do with our lives and see what we're good at and put those together instead of, you know, in my experience, I and many others around me were basically just taught to be robots. Okay, here's what you're good at. You have to get a job. This is going to make you money. Now go do it. Have a nice life. You know, I mean, why can't we think about what kind of lives we want to have and then build around that. Why can't the money be there to support the lives we want instead of us just going to make money because we're trying to survive? It shouldn't be like that. I certainly agree. It's more nuanced, right? And when I was a young person, I didn't realize it. Nobody informed me of the more complexities involved. And I recognize that these are things that I learned in my 30s and 40s. I certainly don't expect many decades younger than I those people to know about this already, which is why I'm trying to introduce it as a way to just think outside the one channel, you know, whether it's a subject matter or, you know, following in your father's footsteps kind of thing. What else is out there? What else is available? And what else do I like? And start thinking about how that all comes together. That's sort of the key tenant of what that chapter is about. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of this personal finance comes down to, right? Because in the end, it's not about money. It's about figuring out how to think. If you can figure out how to think these things through, then you can make better decisions. So it's not about money. It's about strategy. It's about mindsets. It's about, you know, learning. I agree. One of the hot button issues in the book for me personally is student debt, right? The amount that many young people pay for higher education. 
is a dramatic, right? It's a lot of money. There's a whole chapter on that. But what's less discussed are people that go to college, they pay money for that first year, they go into debt, then they drop out, they fail classes, all these things. Those are usually not even included in the statistics. The statistics usually cover college grads and how much of a debt load they carry on graduation. I haven't seen any studies on you know young people that go to college for a year, they drop out because it's not interesting for them. And they go to working minimum wage and they've got $20,000 of student debt and no degree. For me, that's kind of unfathomable as adults, right? How we can encourage and allow kids to take on debt like that. Sometimes it's just unsustainable, even if they graduate in four years and get a job. But for those that drop out, they never get any of the value of the degree. And they might be working at Macy's with two years of college debt. It's sad. Yeah, it really is. Your book also covers alternatives to student debt, working, scholarships, how to get them, financial aid, all that stuff. So really good information about that. I think sometimes it's misrepresented when a young person, they find a way to pay for college, right? They got all these financial aid, federal or private, and they find a way for this young person to pay for college. It sounds great. But without digging deeper, if the parents don't know to look forward or the students don't understand that, okay, you got a grant here, you got a scholarship here, that's great. That's free money. But over here, you're taking on $10,000 of loans every year. So you're going to have $40,000 of debt when you graduate. And you have to pay that back starting the next year. You know, I don't think all this is as clear to the student as it could be. The presentation is, we found a way for you to pay for college. Great. But that's not always uh, clearly communicated. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. People have to be very careful about financial aid because that term is used, like you said, for grants and for loans. So you have to really make sure that you know what you're getting and you have to make sure you know the terms of the loans because I've talked to so many people who have taken out student loans, not having any concept of what they were really getting into as far as interest, timing, all of those things. And it's devastating because most of them say, if I had known that, I probably wouldn't have done it, or at least I would have thought more about it, considered other options. Knowledge is power. In that vein, let's talk about saving because chapter four, and this is one of my favorite topics, savings. And uh, I think it's crucial for young people to understand, but most young people, as I was, think they have plenty of time to save. And so they put it off. So let's talk about why that is such a big mistake. Well, with saving, I tried to present it in the book. There are different components to saving, different buckets, if you will. Step one, most people have heard of it. You got to have an emergency fund, right? How do you fill up an emergency fund? By saving. Chapter one is about jobs, earning income, because quite frankly, nothing else in the book makes sense or is applicable until someone is actually on the path to earning money on their own, right? If they're not doing that on their own, they're living at home with their parents. They have some other source, which is not sustainable long-term. So it all starts with that job, that source of income. And then once they have that, you know, step one is saving up an emergency fund for emergencies, right? And a lot of times people think they have an emergency fund and then they go out and they buy something they want with it. That's not the intent, obviously, of an emergency fund. It's for things that you don't know about, you can't plan for. It's a tire blowout on the highway. It's not, you know, replacing your tires after you drive another 10,000 miles. That's a planned expense, which is part of planned savings, which comes next, right? Tire blowout on the highway, emergency, use your emergency fund saving for car maintenance that you know is going to happen 
that's planned savings. And then longer term or targeted savings, like you know, for a down payment for a home, and then beyond that, retirement. Retirement is a separate chapter. It's at the end of the book. I don't think there are many young people that are going to get excited learning about retirement as a concept or saving for retirement. Uh, it's important to start putting some money away as soon as possible. But step one, emergency. Step two, the other savings buckets. So you have some money to work with. And you know, when we talk about entrepreneurship, which, as I said, is my passion, it's hard to be an entrepreneur if you don't have any money. Right, because anybody that's going to invest or bank loans, they want to see you've got somewhat solid, you know, financial footing to begin with. So, if someone doesn't manage their own personal finances well, it makes it a lot harder to go down the entrepreneurial route. Great point, and that's one of the reasons so many businesses fail too, because they don't have that financial foundation. If someone doesn't have the rigor or discipline to manage their personal finances, most likely they're going to have a similar experience running their own business. It's hard to think that someone can't manage their own checkbook, but they can, you know, run their profit and loss statement for their company better. So let's transition to spending because that's the other side of it, right? I mean, it seems odd that you would need a chapter on how to spend money, but the way money changes hands now is very different from how we grew up. You know, we grew up when everything was cash mostly. So it was a lot easier because if you had cash, you spent it. And if you didn't, you didn't. But now with all the credit cards and even if you're using a debit card from the bank, you still have to keep track or you're overdrawn, blah, blah, blah. So let's talk about the most important aspects of spending that teens and young adults need to be aware of. One of the reasons why I wanted to have a whole chapter on spending, which to your point, it sounds pretty obvious. You know, oh, you go to the store and you buy what you need. What more is there? Well, so many people spend money they don't actually have. We all know about it. I'm not sharing any new information, but you know, they're using someone else's money, putting it on credit. They're taking a loan, essentially. Um, they have to pay that back with interest, right? So step one for spending is to actually have the money. Save. That's why savings comes before spending. Save the money. Have an approach, save, you buy whatever you want. If you want to buy a Lamborghini, great. You know, save up your $200,000, $300,000, whatever it is, and go and buy your Lamborghini, right? But a lot of people go and they just get a, a loan or use a credit card to buy something that they probably don't need and it depreciates the next day. That's not such intelligent spending, right? Intelligent spending is save for what you want, have some discipline. I think a lot of times, especially you know, using kids as an example, if they start the discipline to save for something, by the time they have enough money to buy that thing, oftentimes they don't want it anymore. And so the discipline required for saving is fantastic because it removes the, I want it now, I'm going to go buy it now. And that's terrible. I'm bad about that with Amazon, right? Something pops into my head and I think I need to buy it. And so I, I look at it on Amazon and sometimes it's delivered to my door that day. It's risky. But for young people that are just starting out and don't have any savings, they really do need to be careful to save and then spend, not spend and then try to save up money to pay off their credit card debt. That's another section of the book, you know, what to do when you get to that point. But certainly saving should come first and then responsible spending. Definitely. You know, I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. They were really trying to encourage a family member to deal with the debt by saying, you know, you don't want to be in debt for the rest of your life. And I said, well, take a step back and think of it the other way. It's not about being in debt the rest of your life. Like, oh, shame on you. It's not about that at all. And I know they didn't mean it that way, but it can come across that way. Right. But in my view, I had to get out of debt because the stress level that came with it was so great. It's not about whether or not you're good or bad because you got into this debt or you didn't. It's just that if you save the money and then spend it, you can 
spend it stress-free because there's no burden of having to pay it back and the interest keeps piling on and then you got to go to work. You know, you're paying for the past. And so it's really just about the life that you want. Do you want to be beholden to somebody else or have control of your own life? That's the way I look at it. I look at it the same way. It's sort of like the man, right? You're working for the man. You're paying your debt. It's like, who wants that? Nobody wants that, right? If someone goes to work every day and you know every dollar of their income is already earmarked or assigned to some debt collector, credit card, car payment, uh, student debt, whatever it is, how much fun is that? It's not a fun way to live. Paying off debt and having a little more flexibility and freedom is key to people achieving the level of prosperity that they want. So if the idea is that we have control of our lives and we have the money to spend how we want, you have a section in the book that's on investing in yourself. And I'm not sure that's a concept that everybody understands. So talk to us about what you mean by investing in yourself. I think the best investment we can make in our lives is improving ourselves. And I don't mean, you know, in some high level spiritual way that people may or may not agree with. I'm just talking about education new experiences, trying new things. I've invested in myself by starting different companies or different projects. A lot of them fail, but I learn a lot through the process. I'm very invested in growing myself so that I have all these different experiences and I feel like I have more valuable experience to share with others. And I think a lot of people, certainly young people, think education is in school. And then once they get home from school, they're not reading the book. I'm not going to do these things that are educational. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I'm trying to, you know, flip that a little bit and encouraging people that the best thing we can do for ourselves is really just continuing to grow and evolve as a person, investing money, time, everything that we have into growing ourselves so we are better humans. Every year we evolve a little bit more and we learn new things and then we're more capable to do the next big thing that comes our way. And people that think education stops at high school or college or whatever the level is, they turn that faucet off for education. They think, okay, I know everything I need to know. And they're limiting themselves. And so investing in oneself, it's about, you know, maybe instead of buying another, you know, flat screen TV, take a trip, right? Learn something, get a new experience. Investing in oneself, I think it helps us all grow into more valuable, interesting people that can do more, you know, perform better on a job, start a new business be a better partner, whatever it is. I do think that for those that do invest in themselves, there are probably bigger and better opportunities for them. Could not agree with you more. David Gatchel, thank you so much for all of your time today. I really appreciate you being here and sharing your book, The Financial Empowerment Handbook, The Comprehensive Guide to Financial Literacy and Personal Prosperity. I could talk to you for hours and there's so much more in the book that we didn't even get to cover. So I want everybody to have the option to go and get this book. How can they get it? We're selling it on Amazon. So if you uh, search for the Financial Empowerment Handbook, it'll be there. We've got a Kindle version and a paperback. Thank you, David Gatchel. Once again, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining me on Sensible Chat. Bobby, I appreciate you, uh, especially taking the time to check out the book early, now helping promote it and talk about it. I appreciate what you're doing and I appreciate the support you're giving me in the book and all positivity is always appreciated. So thank you. Thanks so much for joining me today. And until next time, remember, do the math, live the life. 
that does it for this episode of Sensible Chat with your host, Sensible Bobby. Links for all the resources mentioned can be found at sensiblechat.com. That's Sensible with a C. While you're there, find your favorite app to be sure and never miss a show. If you need help with your budget or want to share your thoughts, reach out to Sensible Bobby through the contact page at sensiblechat.com. That's Sensible with a C. 